Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest, which I think you're going to enjoy. Now, I'm sure all of you have at this point heard about the tragedy in East Palestine. And we know that there is a lot of speculation. There are a lot of people saying things like this is our Chernobyl. And I wanted to get somebody who had been on the ground, who had looked deep into this issue, uh, so we could kind of get more into what's going on there. And Pedro Gonzalez's, or sorry, Pedro Gonzalez is joining me. He is the politi uh, politics editor over at Chronicles, and he's also got a great substack of his own, Contra. Make sure that you check it out. Pedro, thanks for coming on. Thanks for, uh, so much for having me, Warren. <clears throat> Absolutely. So, like I said, we, you know, this this train derailment happened, and there wasn't much coming out from the media beyond the initial contact. We know that because of some of the reporting that came out from uh, different people like Tucker Carlson, more attention was paid. But I still feel like it's an insanely small story compared to its actual impact. So you went deep in depth on your own Substack about this. And I want you to go ahead and just kind of walk us through different parts of it. But let, let's just start at the beginning. What actually happened with the train derailment? Why did it derail? Was Were there different factors involved? A lack of regulation, mechanical failures? Why did this train come apart? And what was it carrying? Yeah, so there's a lot here. And that's part of the reason why I wrote it, because most of the information that was out there was coming out in bits and pieces. And it was just difficult to get a kind of bird's eye view of what had happened. And one thing that I found when it's getting into this is that you really have to kind of piece it all together because on the one hand, there's no there's no newspaper or media ecosystem in East Palestine, Ohio. All of the reporting has happened from local outlets that are outside of East Palestine, people that live, you know, the town over or whatever and, and work for the media there that are coming into East Palestine. And so it, it's interesting in the sense that there's a, although this has happened, in the backyards of these people in a town of about 5,000, just under that, they're often in the dark and they have to turn to other sources outside of where they live to basically find out what's going on. And it, it's a really interesting aspect of the story. I mean, interesting from an outside perspective, but obviously it's terrifying for the locals that something big has happened in their backyard and they often feel like they have no idea what's going on because People don't talk to them. They don't get the answers they want. They get conflicting answers. And that's part of why, partly why I set out to do this. So I'm, the the East Palestine derailment actually begins before the night the train went off the tracks. It, it starts on, as far as I can tell, February 1st, when uh, Norfolk Southern train 32N broke down at least once in the night. Uh, people who spoke to CBS News agreed to talk to the media on the condition of anonymity because they said they were afraid of retaliation from Norfolk Southern. And they told the press that they think that the reason the train broke down uh, had to do with the, the fact that it's um, it was massive. It was hauling over 150 cars, I think it was 151 cars, and it weighed 18,000 tons, something like that. Just this thing was a behemoth. And the people who were, again, talking to the press anonymously were saying that, you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't even be running cars this big. Like this is this is just this is asking for a disaster when you have this kind of a behemoth on the tracks, and and they also noted that that basically the, the whole operation from beginning to end is stretched to the bone because of all of these layoffs that you have one guy who's doing multiple different jobs. I mean, this is I think it, you should probably look at this as intense as like flying an airplane. For whatever reason, we don't, but it, it seems to me that you know trains hauling important cargo and especially hazardous chemicals should be taken as seriously as planes flying in the sky. But for whatever reason, we don't. And I think that's that's represented in the fact that Norfolk Southern thinks it's apparently fine to have, you know, one guy doing two or three different jobs that, you know, he may or may not actually be able to do. But that's just what they have to do because there's not enough people. So that's February 1st. On February 3rd, uh, the train is seen as it passes through uh, Salem, Ohio, uh, at different locations, it's it's basically security camera footage that we have at different residences and businesses that show as the train is sailing through the town that there's what looks like fire or sparks flashing underneath the uh, underneath the the cars, 
And this is about 20 miles. I think that the footage that went viral that I think most people, if you've seen this video that I'm talking about, you probably, you've seen the one from, uh, it's a, it's a manufacturing plant in Salem and it's, the train is passing through the back of it and you can see this kind of glow from underneath it. That's about 20 miles from where the train derailed. And so a big question is, you know, was the crew notified of the derailment? Uh, did, it, or in other words, why didn't they stop it from happening? And initially, and as far as we know, still, it sounds like it was a mechanical failure, um, not a brake failure or anything like that, just a mechanical failure. Um, and, and that the mechanisms that were in place to warn the crew, uh, it, it seems like they basically failed or didn't warn the crew until the last minute. And this is, again, a lot of this stuff is still being investigated, uh, which I think is actually good that I wrote my report when I did about two or three weeks after the fact, because there are details in the report, you know, again, this happened on February 3rd, but there are details in what I wrote that didn't come to light until like February 25th, just because that that's how this whole thing has played out. And, um, initially people, I think kind of settled on that, you know, it's like, okay, well the, the crew didn't get notified. There was some kind of a system failure, right? It, it wasn't their fault. It was, uh, it was, it was an error with the machine, but then again, after the fact, it comes out that on February 1st, the train broke down at least once. So why was it rolling on the tracks after February 1st? Right. Even if you could like setting aside what happened on February 3rd and, and the failure of the warning mechanisms to actually give the crew time to stop the train. Why was the train even rolling? If it broke down on the night of February 1st, like no one has answered that question or is, has, is bothered to ask it. So, so is the practice of running a train this large with that kind of skeleton crew, is that very normal for what's going on now? Or just not, not even just with Norfolk Southern, but do you know, is that, is that reflective of a larger trend in kind of uh, the railroad industry? That's a good question. I didn't compare, I didn't do like a comparative analysis of, of basically the size of trains today versus, I don't know, 10 years ago. Sure. But the comments that the crew gave to CBS indicated that this this has become too common, mm. uh, especially considering the lack of people that are available to make sure the train is safely operating. So, and, and you kind of see this recurring theme of people saying, I mean, it goes all the way up to, to Pete Buttigieg, right? Whose initial reaction was like, this stuff happens all the time, which that might be true, but it right. shouldn't happen all the time. It, it's like saying, well, you know, there are a lot of third world countries out there. It's like, well, that doesn't mean that we should be one and that our infrastructure should reflect that of a third world country, right? Because that yeah, was, was comparison. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, yeah, that that's uh, something that you really think about with this. Isn't this just a reflection of a larger problem yes. we have where we're just stretching all of our infrastructure, all yes. of these critical systems that are just the lifeblood of America that no one really seems to care about, pay attention to. Everyone's way more... <laughs> interested in social justice and how many drag queens can dance on the head of a pin rather than, you know, whether or not we can safely transport dangerous chemicals across yeah. the United States without just nuking a, a small town in the middle yeah. of Ohio. And so, yeah. it, you know, you, you mentioned airplanes, but we know even in that case, yeah. you know, equity right. and, and those things are far more important than actually getting these systems moving. And I think that just speaks to how far everyone is stretched and how willing they are to kind of bend and shape things around these political priorities. Yeah. And I think that that was another reason that I, I wrote this is because I immediately became sick of the, the whole, you know, Democrats, bad Republicans, good or whatever. Mm. It's just not true. This story is so much bigger and deeper than that. And, and the, the issues that have made this like Pete Buttigieg, unfortunately was correct to say a kind of a common, a common, uh, factor of American life when it comes to our infrastructure, those the the things that have made that a reality, they predate the Biden administration. They run through the Trump administration and actually go back to the Obama administration. And it's it's the same thing regardless of who is in the White House. Our infrastructure is still crumbling, uh, regardless of the rhetoric, right? And and again, I tried to make that very clear in my piece that this this goes beyond Republican and Democrat. And uh, so. Um, so the train derails on the night of, of February 3rd. And again, this is one of those things where it's really murky because what we were told and what we're still told is that the reason that there was this controlled vent, and we're going to get to that, 
is that there was the the threat of these these cars containing hazardous chemicals exploding, which would have you know the the blast radius they estimated would be would be about a mile, and on top of that, you'd obviously get the release of all these noxious chemicals, but with a blast. And so, what we understand is that there was nothing noxious from what we're told that was leaked as soon as the train derailed, right? It was a sort of thing like the, that stuff did get into the, the soil and sky, but it was because of the controlled vent. But again, here's one of the murky things is that people immediately reported smelling something foul. Um, the, the fire chief, Keith Drabik of East Palestine, at one point basically said like, look, as far as we can tell, the air quality is okay, but if you don't have to come to East Palestine, don't. And the mayor himself, who was on scene within minutes of the train derailing um, around 9 p.m., said that he could smell something really terrible. And like all the residents I spoke with said the same thing. Uh, and one of the residents I spoke with, her name is Zusa, she told me that she actually woke up and then uh, she, she was actually she was awake. She didn't wake up. She was awake when the train derailed and she had no idea what happened. She just heard tons of sirens, you know, tons of, of ruckus. And... Um, and then she knew something was wrong when her son, who has asthma, started vomiting. And that suddenly, like, she had difficulty breathing because her lungs and her home were filled with some you know, horrendous smelling thing. And so they fled in the night around 3 a.m. But they had no idea, you know, what had happened, really. Um, so, again, this is one of those things where there's all these questions. Was there or was there not something that was leaked from these cars on the night that it actually happened, apart from the controlled vent? We don't really know. And that contributes to the distrust around this and all the confusion. And, and that was my first impression of like talking with the residents, apart from the fact that they're very nice and kind and generous with their time, despite the fact that they're kind of living through this, you know, waking nightmare of uncertainty. They're also just very, they don't trust authorities because from the beginning, the authorities fumbled how they were handling this. Um, and, and that's reflected in everything, in every aspect of the response. Um, I can keep going. I don't know if you want to interject. No, well, I just, uh, I think it's interesting that, like you said, because there is no uh, media in that area, they are completely reliant on outside reporting and they're completely reliant on the experts. Like you said, you're completely reliant on these different authorities that have to come in from out of town. They need to interject. They need to assess what's going on. And unfortunately, of course, you, you'd want the first concern to be the welfare of the citizens, the stabilization of the environment containing everything, and making sure that people are properly informed and taken care of. But it seems like at every step, the concern was the possible political outfall, the possible uh, you know legal liabilities, the possible reactions by different corporations, entities there. It's hard for the people there to get a straight answer. Is my water safe? Is yeah. My, my air safe? Do I need to flee this area? Can the government give me assistance? You know, wh what is being done to ensure that the, the damage is minimized and what action do I need to take as a resident here? It just seems that that was completely, uh, like you said, something that they could not trust at any moment. Yeah, no, from the beginning, that's at least the impression the residents got. And again, it, it's totally independent of, of intention, um, but that's, that's just the impression that the residents got is that people don't care about us. And also it's more important that, you know, Norfolk Southern comes out of this looking okay. And so on February 4th, there's a partial evacuation order that's imposed by Mayor Conaway. And most people, by the way, in, in the town that I spoke, I actually didn't meet anybody who doesn't like the mayor. Uh, he, he's he's one of them, right? And I should have started with, with this, is that East Palestine is the quintessential um, small American town. Uh, it's in, it's blue collar. You know the average income, the average household income is around forty six thousand. It's ninety percent white. You know ninety nine percent of the people that live there are U S citizens. Um, it's it's a small place, but it's very industrious. Like they they've been manufacturing a lot of things that range from you know, things that are made with metal to uh, a, a, uh, ceramics. I spoke with people that have worked at the same ceramics uh, facility for decades. Uh, and that facility, it's actually really interesting. I found that the, the place where they work, this uh, this plant that they said was actually fairly close to where the train derailed, um, the kilns are over 100 years old. And the uh, this tiny little plant in East Palestine, Ohio, 
manufactured um, parts made out of ceramic for um, uh, the Manhattan Project. They, they covertly was involved in producing stuff that was being uh, shipped off for use in the Manhattan Project. So kind of interesting. Like, and I, I wanted to bring that out because the reaction that some people had, I'm not going to name names. I could if you want me to. But the reaction that some people had was like, who cares about this like small town? This is like, this is so irrelevant compared to, I don't know, Ukraine or something, right? Yeah. And by the way, this happens all the time. And it, I was just so disgusted by that. Uh, I, it's Yeah, go ahead. I think that was the, the, the reaction so many people had is, yeah. you know, this seems like a horrific event that seems like there's a huge problem here, but, you know, no one from the government responding, no major players are showing up. You know, the president is heading over to Ukraine to talk about how many yeah. billions of dollars you're going to spend on that. And like you said, there's a failure in all political sides here. It's not just the, just Biden or the Democrats, but, but it did seem like a very clear message was sent. Like these people yeah. are not important. This is not what the empire cares about. There's, there's more important things happening in the world. We sh shouldn't really be focused on this. But yeah. one thing that is, is a little confusing is from much of the co coverage a lot of people, I think, got the idea that there was just this order to, like, go burn everything, you know, like like some guy showed up with a flamethrower and just kind of uh, got rid of the, the chemicals. But it, it sounds like the train might have was already on fire. There was already some was. level yeah, yeah. already yeah. happening. And so the decision was whether or not to go ahead and, like you said, vent those chemicals. So what was the train carrying that is that was so uh, worrisome? Why was the decision made to go ahead and take that action while the train was already on fire? That's a good question. So the train was carrying a variety of different chemicals that are hazardous to humans and are used in in various things from paint to manufacturing PVC. And but the one that everyone knows about and the one that everyone that was like the main concern was vinyl chloride. And I think five. I'm doing this from, from memory. It's obviously in my article. Sure. But five of the cars that derailed contained a combined, uh, it was over 100,000 gallons of vinyl chloride. So this stuff is is really dangerous. It's extremely carcinogenic. Um, and it, it actually can be converted into, or it, it, it can become um, essentially uh, a chemical weapon. Uh, I think it's called phosgene. And this was, this was used in World War II, or excuse me, World War I. And it, it killed about 85,000 people. And, and so I think I think it becomes that when it interacts with heat. And so basically the concern was, is like, if, if we allow this, because initially the, the um, initially the approach was to allow the, the fires to burn out. And then um, first responders would move in and then basically con con uh, complete extinguishing it once Norfolk Southern deemed it safe. But that changed when on November 5th, there was detected a basically a sharp increase in the temperature of one of the cars containing vinyl chloride. And the concern was that if that car goes, the, all the other ones are going to go. And, and then you have a scenario where you, you're not just, you, you don't just have an explosion, but then you, you have this scenario where this stuff, I guess, gets hot enough that it can also become much worse or something. Uh, again, again, all this stuff is, this is one of the situations where it's like, I, the criticism of whether or not, you know, like the vent was a good or bad idea. I don't know. Like, I guess we're not going to know for a while, mm. but it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy call. Right. And I mean, imagine being one of the first responders that had to deal with this because what these guys had to do was, is they had to dig trenches around. And I think this is a really important part of the story that again, it, this got totally overlooked in the really heated debate over whether or not they should have vented the chemicals. Right or take the risk of having it explode. What they did, what they ended up doing was digging these trenches around the cars and dumping the stuff into pits and then igniting it with flares and allowing it to burn off. Um, and, and that's where you got that, that photogenic but ominous black cloud that everyone saw, right? But it's yeah. important to note that the cars were on fire before that. I, I saw a video, I was not allowed to share it and put it in my, um, in my story uh, because the person that took it, I think was like worried about their employment. But I saw a video that was taken by somebody who was on scene at the moment it happened. And I mean, the cars were on fire because, uh, again, there was there was already th that black cloud that everyone is familiar with. There were flames before that and there was smoke before that. That that really nasty black cloud is just obviously all the chemicals that were being burned off. Um, so that happened. Right. 
And amid the debate over the venting, it was completely missed this question of like, well, wait, what about the first responders? Because a lot of the people who were involved, in particular the firefighters, had to surrender hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment because it was contaminated. I was told that they had boots that had basically been eaten through by the stuff that they were dealing with. Uh, I tried to I tried to speak to the East Palestine Fire Department. They, they didn't want to talk to me. But I know that the fire chief himself has said that, that they're basically having to use gear on loan from other agencies in and out of Ohio because they had to surrender all their gear. Like this sounds like some pretty nasty stuff, right? So what about the guys that had to actually dig the trenches, interact with it? Well, according to one union representative, and this letter was sent to uh, Governor DeWine on March 1st. Again, the derailment happened on the 3rd. We, like, we didn't get this letter until March 1st. And in that letter, this union rep says that there are a bunch of, of uh, a bunch of workers who were involved in this effort uh, who were not given the proper protective equipment. And that that at least one of them told the rep that he he had been experiencing like brutal migraines and nausea as he was work like dealing with this stuff. And he and he basically he called the supervisor and asked, like, I I, you know, I'm, I can't see straight, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. And the supervisor got got back to him by saying, I'll get back to you, and they never did. And according to this letter, there are 40 people who were, uh, that this person represents, who were involved in the cleanup, who say that they weren't given the proper PPE, and that for days afterwards, they, they had migraines and nausea. What are the long-term effects of that? We don't know, and most people don't even know that the letter was sent. You know, And I think Norfolk Southern responded in the Hill. They, yeah, they responded in the Hill by basically saying it's not true. Or whatever. It's funny. All their responses are worded in such a way that don't inspire confidence and make you think that they're. It's like it's kind of an admission that there's probably some truth to this complaint because of the way that things are worded. But, anyways, again, we didn't even know that until March first because everyone was like so angry about the venting. But that everyone was so angry about the venting that we forgot about the people that actually had to deal with this stuff and are ultimately forgotten. And we won't hear about them again, you know, unless something horrible happens to them, like they develop cancer or something. Yeah, it sounds like a like an Agent Orange, you know, burn pit scenario where, you know, yeah, they, how could they even be prepared for this kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like, it seems like that your average local first responding department is not going to have this kind of thing on hand. It's yeah. very clear that the company involved did not have any way to contribute to this cleanup, you know, in, in the immediate aftermath when these decisions had to be made. And then the fact that these people are not getting any kind of answers, that there's no attention paid to what's going to happen long term. Yeah, it, it does seem like an absolute nightmare for, for the people who had to immediately be impacted by this cleanup. And if they're not there, then that just means the community suffers even more. So they're doing their job, but you know, the, they're not getting any, any special thanks. And who knows if they'll be taken care of in the long run for being directly involved in, in this cleanup. But what about the, you know, the aftermath of this? Like once you have that situation at least somewhat stabilized what what were the people dealing with right after and what was the effort of the government and norfolk southern in trying to understand kind of the impact of uh, uh, on the environment and the people who were living in the town yeah so initially it seemed like dewine was because it's interesting to see how attitudes toward dewine have shifted uh when i went to i got as close as i could to where the train derailed and there's um, there's a there's a store with an old banner. It's been there for a lot for years. You can tell because it looks really warm by weather. But there's an old banner that says, um, I think it's like "Dump Mike Fire Mike DeWine." So you you can kind of see that this is a town that you know is is already there. There's some tension there. And I spoke to the the people that I worked with who spoke to the at the ceramics facility told me that, or at least the husband told me that he was basically a Democrat his whole life uh, until Trump and. Um, so this is very much like that kind of a town, right? Uh, like they value, I guess their, their independence and, and at the same time they demand accountability. And so initially it, I think it actually looked like the wine was doing a decent job. Uh, there, there was what seemed like an aggressive, uh, response from the state, but then it was like, after that, it kind of just disappeared. And that's how most people feel like the wine just you know, did what he had to do initially and then just vanished. And and you contrast that to COVID where 
Someone I know joked is the reason that DeWine locked everyone in their homes during COVID is because, you know, his true calling in life was to be a cop. And very different with this, you know, very much like hands off. There's that uh, very bad uh, question that he fields where he's asked, you know, would you be back in East Palestine? And his response is something like, well, I think I'd probably be drinking bottled water. But yeah, I think I'd be back in town if I lived here. Like that was that was a terrible response. And so but the thing that really rubbed people the wrong way was the fact that from where they stood, it looked like Norfolk Southern was overseeing the cleanup or, you know, most people kind of see it as a cover up of, of what Norfolk Southern did. And again, it didn't inspire confidence that the testing agencies, the, the contractors that Norfolk uh, Southern brought in, like the Center for uh, Toxicology and Environmental Health that I, I write about them in my story, uh, that they brought in, like the CTEH is is a firm that has a long history of being involved in controversies where, you know, some organization like BP, like they were involved in the BP oil spill. Mm. And, and they, they've been involved in a number of other environmental disasters where a corporation is at fault. And this contractor will come in and will always say it's safe. It's safe to go back to work. It's safe to be in the water or whatever. And so when they you know, came into town and introduced themselves, like locals figured it out and were not happy about it. And so I spoke to one woman who had a, a pretty bad experience with her or with uh, with this contractor. And basically she had been living, she's, she's the woman that I mentioned earlier who fled at 3 a.m. with her son when he began vomiting. And she had been living um, out of town in, across the border in Pennsylvania in a hotel and on February, until February 15th, she had been receiving housing assistance. But once all these tests came back, and again, who's doing the testing, right? Once all the testing came back that everything's fine, the housing assistance started to dry up. And again, contributing to that controversy is the fact that when DeWine declared the coast was clear, uh, he, he wasn't citing uh, authorities on the local or state level. He was actually citing a contractor called ACOM. And... This is a private agency. Uh, it was, I believe, it was hired by Norfolk Southern as well. And, but more importantly, when I looked into donations like, um, through the uh, Open Secrets database, they called. I think it's called FollowTheMoney.org. It has it has a broader institutional name, but the URL is FollowTheMoney.org. You can you can actually see that ACOM has contributed at least uh, once to Dewine in the last year or so. So again, this is the kind of stuff that makes people itch, right? And there's actually a lot more here in, when it comes to like the, the the connection between politics and lobbying and the transportation industry and DeWine specifically. But um, going back to Zusa, so she wants to get her home tested to confirm, you know, it, basically if I'm not going to be supported to live outside of East Palestine, I want to know for sure that it's safe to go home. And so initially a test is scheduled and she goes to meet them at her home and he's Palestine. Uh, but 15 minutes before the appointed time, she's told we basically we can't do the test because we need a cop and there are no cops that are available. At the time, Trump was in town. And so basically they surmised that there were no cops available because they're all doing you know security detail for Trump. And Zusa told me that she ended up getting into a really heated exchange with this toxicologist from the center. Because the toxicologist is telling her, we can't trace any of the symptoms people are experiencing to the derailment. And that set Zusa off because, you know, it defies everything that she's been hearing and are experiencing herself. And I also thought it was shocking. So I actually got in touch with this woman. Her name is Sarah Burnett. And I reached out to her and I just gave her the quote that Zusa gave me. And she replied and said that uh, she just she basically clarified that none of the air quality tests or none of the symptoms that people are reporting uh, have been connected to uh, air quality in East Palestine. But again, there's you know tons of people reporting different things. Like obviously Zeus's son was throwing up and she had difficulty breathing. And I spoke to a business owner who evacuated um, her shop in the downtown. And when she came back to her shop, she said it was filled with this really thick chemical smell that burned her eyes and throat. And then her son could still, I mean, like this is like a week and a half after the fact. And she said her son occasionally can still smell it, right? And so then you have this, this contractor that Norfolk Southern brought in saying, we can't connect any of the things that you're describing to air quality. And 
again, like this is exactly the kind of thing that that has made this this whole crisis, the, the actual environmental crisis and a health emergency, um, seem like one big cover up to the people of East Palestine. Yeah, I mean, it it feels like having a cigarette company tell you that the scientists that they hire have found that cigarettes have no connection to cancer, right? But yeah. I want to get more into the environmental impact and the people involved there. But before we do, guys, we need to talk a little bit about today's sponsor. Let me tell you about Pure Health and taking care of your liver. Hey guys, I know a lot of you are taking care of yourselves. You're working out and you're watching what you eat, and that's great because you got to start taking care of things like your liver. Why? Well, because the latest data from the American Heart Association shows that adults with fatty liver are three and a half times more likely to have heart failure than those that avoid it. The American Liver Foundation says that over 100 million Americans already have fatty liver, which means a lot of people are at risk. There are so many things in our daily lives that can impact your liver. Cholesterol, alcohol, toxins. If you're leaning on things like Tylenol or statins, it can all have an impact. That's why so many people have a sluggish, fatty liver that makes them gain weight and lose energy. Your liver has a ton of key functions, which is why you want to take care of it. And Liver Health Formula can help. It's an all-natural supplement that contains 12 clinically proven botanicals, which help to recharge and protect your liver. It's also manufactured right here in the United States and approved by American doctors. Diet and exercise are key, but if you want to add something that will protect your liver and boost your energy, try Liver Health Formula and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you'll receive a free bottle of blood sugar formula to reduce sugar cravings. You also get four free ebooks to support every aspect of your health. Try Liver Health Formula by going to Get Liver Help dot com slash orin and claim your five free bonus gifts that's getliverhelp.com slash orin there's a link in the description down below that'll take you right to it all right so we've got these poor people who are in a town that you know there's a massive black cloud from a chemical that is carcinogenic that we know has serious side effects they are all there are many many people in the town feeling very serious health uh health impacts and they have this contractor hired by the very people who are responsible for the train derailment yeah. saying well we just can't possibly figure out how any of this could be connected even though a 3 year old pointing at the giant cloud of the sky can probably do the math what is the government where is the government during all this are are they concern i mean we all we hear about is environmental regulations the horrible impacts uh of things on the environment is the government not active in testing this stuff making sure that the corporation is doing it needs to uh, keeping an eye on these contractors who have been involved in this testing the, initially the impression was that basically norfolk southern was out in front and that the, the epa was doing stuff but ultimately it, again the impression that everyone got was that norfolk southern was running the show <clears throat> after Trump visited, I mean, this is, again, this is why it's it's so stupid. After Trump visited, then the federal government starts to get more involved, obviously because the Biden administration, I think, felt humiliated by that. And, and so that's when you start to see kind of a more proactive role. I think DeWine also starts to be a little more proactive. Um, the, but I think from, from the very beginning, the um, that was part of the problem, was that it, it felt like you had to get people to care because this is not the kind of town that you're supposed to care about, right? And and again, even when you have this involvement by the government, uh, people are looking at, for example, guys like Troy Nels, the Texas Republican who chastised J.D. Vance. I don't know if you, if you saw that video of J.D. Vance in a creek. The, the mm -hmm. locals call it, I think, Sulphur Run. And... Uh, and, and Vance is in there and he has a stick and he scrapes it across the creek bed. And there's this kind of like brew of chemicals that come up and it looks kind of like an oil slick. And so this is the water that's in town, right? And Nels freaks out and, and says that it's really irresponsible. Because, sorry, JD, after that release in that video, uh, says that people should um, people should stick to bottled water. And this stuff is being provided by the government, right? So it's like an easy it's an easy thing that you can do to keep yourself safe. Just drink bottled water instead of tap water for as long as you can. And Troy Mills freaks out and says that it's super irresponsible for him to say that, uh, you know, kind of like shame on you for, for scaring people, 
I think he even says that he like, you know, asked someone to give me a, a glass of tap water uh, so I can so I can drink it in front of them and show them how safe it is. But I looked at Troy Nell's just because it, it's so easy to find this stuff. And uh, when you look at like donations that are given to Troy Nell's, the big the biggest one of the biggest sectors for donors for Nell's is the transportation industry. And he also received donations from Norfolk Southern uh, during the uh, the 22, uh, 2022 general election. And again, so it's like the government's involved, right? But people still don't really feel like it, it um, like it's looking out for them. And the last time I visited before I published a story, the EPA had actually finally set up a kind of like HQ in downtown uh, East Palestine. And I think it's part of that. Like they, they, they actually are trying to get more aggressive about showing people, you know, you know, the EPA is here. Uh, we're actually trying to make things better. And I mean, look, the the people that I spoke with, um, they were, I mean, they're actually nice. It, and this is, I think, another important part of the story. The the people in downtown uh, East Palestine who are there working for the EPA, some of them are from out of town, but I imagine, uh, you know, a few of them are also from Ohio. And they're basically just normal people who are trying to do their job. And I, I got that impression also from uh, a few Norfolk Southern employees that I spoke with. Like th these are not like, you know, the, the, the suits, like these are blue collar guys hmm. who live in Ohio and, you know, they don't like being, you know, they don't like the position that they put in where they've kind of become representatives of this like evil entity. I mean, like you, you look at Norfolk Southern's top shareholders and it's like Vanguard and BlackRock, right? It's the perfect villain because they're just like, they're lobbying everywhere. They're super powerful. They're really good at influencing Republicans and Democrats to get what they want in terms of legislation. You know, they're, they they have, obviously their shareholders include uh, these like what Matt Taibbi would call like the vampire squids of, of finance capitalism, right? Just, it just like, the, it's the perfect villain. But then there are people that are just like, the, like the first responders, the emergency crews that work for Norfolk Southern, um, who obviously, you know, are not happy about this. But because of what's happened, it's like blown back onto them. And so like I was told by one of the guys that I interviewed, his name is Chris Klein. He told me that he he has friends who are both there on the night the train derailed. And he also has friends who are, you know, blue collar Norfolk Southern employees. And and he feels sorry for obviously both of them. But he said like the, the Norfolk Southern guys have been kind of getting like unduly attacked by people they know. Kind of like, how could you work for that company? And that, that was another aspect of the story that I thought was really important to tell because, um, because these are things that no one in Ohio uh, are responsible for, that these right. blue collar employees are not responsible for. Like they, they didn't ask for this. Um, and, and again, it's, it's something that transcends like the, like the, the red blue divide uh, because it doesn't matter who's in the white house. They're going to be lobbied by organizations like Norfolk Southern anyway. Now, do you think that the or do the residents feel like there would have been more of a response if there was more political hay to be made here? Like you said, so many people involved here are lobbied by these people. They don't want uh, the right type of attention drawn to what's happening here. But if this had been a community that, you know, if this could have been a, the story about how a, a you know, a a racist company that was uh, callous against a different community, uh, you know, just, just let this uh, chemical run wild and, and let the effects impact it. Do people there feel like there would have been a more significant federal response and that the press would have brought a lot more resources to bear on holding a company like this accountable? Maybe. I mean, something that occurred to me was the fact that, you know, like Flint, Michigan, we all know what those, two words mean when I say them, mm. that, like the, the issue of water in there, right? It, it seems to me that East Palestine, uh, it only got attention. Uh, it, it has not kind of entered our psyche and our vocabulary the way that Flint, Michigan has. And I think for obvious reasons, again, this is a town that you're not supposed to care about. You know, this is, this is a quintessential white working class town in heartland America. Who cares, right? And, and so I think that, unfortunately, that's just kind of how things are. I mean, Pete Buttigieg was talking, as, as this whole thing was unfolding, Pete Buttigieg is talking about how uh, it, it's a real problem that there are so many white people in construction. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, it's, it's terrible um, that you basically have to, you have to worry about 
whether or not your town is going to get the attention it needs amid a crisis, you know, based on if you if you check enough of the boxes that suggest you are politically useful, right? Yeah, if, if we don't have enough people with the right diversity boxes to throw in front of the camera, then our town might just not get the kind of federal aid or the kind of media attention really that drives uh, accountability and, and changes yeah. things. But, you know, where are people now? I mean, like you said, there there's a lot of this has dried up uh, the federal dollars or the housing assistance and and other things are not necessarily there. I mean, we've got FEMA, we've got these emergency organizations that could provide extended, uh, you know, I, assistance. I live in Florida. I know that for, you know, six, eight, almost uh, months, almost a year after hurricanes, FEMA's out there putting people up in hotels and taking care of people, making sure that they kind of have a lot of this relief. Are, are none, is none of this involved here? Is, is that attention not being focused? And why not? So my, my focus um, toward the end of the story is talking about the assistance that business owners are getting, right? Because mm -hmm. it seems like th there's all, there's, this is another murky aspect of the story. <clears throat> and this is something that lent to the concern of, of locals is, for example, initially there were these, the people that were going around conducting testing were asking people to sign uh, hold harmless paperwork, basically <laughs> sign this. And uh, if anything happens to you, we're not liable. Uh, basically, if we tell you to move, if we tell you it's safe to go back home and you get cancer or whatever, uh, you can't hold us responsible. And it's funny because, again, Norfolk Southern's response to that, once pictures of these documents started to go viral uh, and people were saying, like, I'm being asked to hold harmless the people that are involved in the cleanup. If anything happens to me, like, that doesn't that doesn't make me feel good. Norfolk Southern responded by saying, well, that was a mistake. Uh, we, we've corrected that. And uh, yeah. We, we just, yeah. yeah, like they didn't even say it's not true. They're like, oh, whoops, we uh, that one slipped by us. And we're going to make sure that <clears throat> it doesn't happen again or whatever. It was just this. That's how all their statements are. Like they don't they don't rebut anything. They're just like kind of like sorry or you know uh, like they 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 were asked or there's all this controversy over soil remediation, right? <clears throat> because uh, several locals told me that whenever a train comes through, there's this awful chemical smell, uh, depending on how close you live to to ground zero, and that might have to do with the fact that a a lot of the soil. Um, this is this goes back to what happened immediately afterwards. So after the controlled vents on the night of uh, February 8th, um, the mandatory evacu evacuation was lifted and trains started rolling immediately afterwards. And that, that actually infuriated the mayor because the mayor was, according to the mayor, Norfolk sold, uh, Southern told him the trains won't start rolling until basically everyone's back in their homes and, you know, like stuff is settled. Um, that's not what happened. As soon as the evacuation order was lifted at night, trains started rolling through. I've heard estimates that range from five minutes to 15 minutes to an hour, but most people have, like the, the consensus is the coast was declared clear and the trains started going before residents were able to get back into their homes or open their own or open their businesses. And when I visited right before I published my story, I saw signs on shops that say close until further notice. And I asked people, <clears throat> you know, who wanted to be anonymous, I asked them, um, is it related to, you know, what happened on February 3rd? And they, they said yes. So the trains are rolling, but life has not gone back to normal. And I mean, and that's just kind of the story of this whole thing. The The good news is that it looks like the EPA is, is going to be there. Like I was told that they leased the building in downtown East Palestine for six months. So they're going to be there for at least six months. Um, but when I asked them, I, I walked in and I asked them some questions and I, and I brought that up and I asked them, you know, so you guys are going to be here for six months. And they said, we'll be here for as long as we have to. I hope that's true um, because the, the state of things right now is that if you visit, it's, it seems like life is starting to return to normal. But if you talk to people, there's always this kind of uncertainty uh, in their voices. And, and going back to business owners, I, I asked them, um, you know, has, have, have you been offered help? And uh, at least initially what was going on was Norfolk Southern was asking people to provide three years of back paperwork 
to qualify for assistance, right? Um, to, to be compensated, presumably. But the problem is, is that there are businesses that are that haven't been around that long. Um, th there was one family that I, I didn't I didn't find them. I didn't interview them. It was I think it was an article in CNN, and they opened a coffee shop in East Palestine, and they were thinking about opening a second one. I think also in East Palestine, just in a different location, uh, because they said things were kind of on the upswing for a while. That's changed, right? Um, sure. There's a building that's right, really close to where the train derailed, and I was told that the owner of that building also recently acquired it, and was was like ob that's obviously you know kind of ruined his plans now, and that's the, kind of the state where things are. Is you know that's the question. Is like is the aid that we're being offered going to be enough in the long term? Uh, and you know is East Palestine going to make it? And the last thing I'll say because I'm going on and on here is that the the people there are really resilient. Everyone I talk to is obviously, you know, scared. One woman I spoke to, her name is Joy Masher. She runs a flower shop. Um, very tough lady, uh, very resilient, um, and very, very like positive. But she told me that, you know, she still feels terrified about what happened here. And a lot of it has to do with all of the unknowns. Yeah, it's, it's people don't understand when something like this happens to your town kind of what because it's like you said the emphasis is so much on moving on getting business back going you know the train's got to run again and and people don't realize this kind of the, that long-term impact and, and what it does to people's lives and careers and investments you look at people and you're like how could they possibly even think about signing some kind of hold harmless agreement but you got to realize like these people are in the middle of a tragedy they don't know what's going on they don't know who to trust they don't know when help is coming they don't know what comes next a lot of times they're not sure if anyone is coming to help them if if there if there'll be another opportunity this might be the only chance to get anything and a lot of these companies are relying on that you know yeah. not just in this situation but all kinds of different disaster situations where they think if we can you know just trick people into securing what they can get now then we can avoid the kind of legal ramifications later but of course like you said you also have these people who have to live in this town you know, they, if you own a home here, it's not like you can just sell it and move away. Who in their right mind is buying a home in East Palestine for like the yeah. next, you know, five, 10 years, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like who's opening a business? Who, yeah. Who's doing any yeah. of that stuff? And so the people who have invested in that community, the people who have, you know, sp who spend their, their day to day there, the people who have sacrificed for that, it's not, it's not just whether this stuff is going to have a long-term effect on them health-wise, which of course is a massive concern and something, a question that they still have no idea what the truth is about, but also their, their mid to, you know, their short to midterm prospects are just yeah. devastated because they're, they're locked into a place where no one is sure what's going to happen and what the long-term environmental health effects are going to be. And no one is going to invest in or you know, help them figure out what to do next now that they've been stuck in this situation. Yeah, I, I, one of the people that I spoke with told me that their neighbor had recently gotten a job offer in Florida and he was just about to put his home up for sale when this happened. And now th this just one of these small examples of, of how far reaching this stuff is, right? And, and how it has all these angles that we're not even aware of until we ask people. But basically, this this person that had this you know this promising job prospect, well, now all of that is cast in doubt because you know good luck selling your home in East Palestine right now. Mm -hmm. um, property values have already started to fall. But at the same time, and this is a point that I really wanted to emphasize, uh, these people are really resilient and they they're there because they want to be there. Uh, the I, I spoke to a couple. Uh, I, I interviewed the couple and their son. I didn't get a chance to talk to her, uh, the daughter who said that she had some pretty uh, nasty rashes on her hands. I, the, the husband is named Lenny Klein. The wife is Pam Klein. The son is Chris Klein. Uh, Lenny showed me his um, his waist and he had like a, a rash that ran ac across it. And this is apparently something that fairly common that people have experienced since the derailment is rashes on their on their on their bodies. Um, but the Kleins have lived there their whole lives. Uh, Pam and Lenny met in high school. Uh, Lenny has lived in East Palestine his entire life. He only left briefly, uh, when he was in the air force and that's it. They, they've worked at the same, uh, plant for decades and they have, they don't have any plans to leave. And the motto of East Palestine is where you want to be. And, and that's, 
that's basic that's true for basically everyone living there they live there because it's where they want to be it's not because of the work i think like our brains have been so ruined by you know modern conceptions of work and life which is you have to just basically be rootless and follow the work wherever it takes you right that's not what these people are doing they're in east palestine because east palestine is home in the truest sense of the word and that's again why this is so tragic um they're they're not they're not ready to just become refugees and 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 you know in their own land so but but it's also it's also really admirable and and again that's why it is the quintessential uh small american town yeah i mean that is exactly what you need to get through times like this you know the the old saying is you know rome wasn't great or uh men didn't love rome because it was great it was great because men loved it you know and if these people are gonna get through this and they're gonna uh, have a community that continues forward, then they absolutely have to have that outlook that it's it's essential for them to fight for where they are and and to value that more than an economic opportunity or a place where they where they can find some kind of different work. But I wonder too how this just impacts. I mean, obviously East Palestine, but but all these different towns that might in you know be affected by kind of no. this breakdown of infrastructure when you feel like you've got to become a political football to get any, any yeah. real assistance, right? Like, you know, uh, Trump has to show up and, and, you know, people might have different uh, opinions on Trump showing up. I, I think it was a good thing. I, wh whether his motivations are, I, I think is kind of Trump at his best focusing the attention and forcing the Biden administration and, and, and the media to cover this and care and, and make a, a big deal about this. Uh, or as big a deal as possible. But the the fact that a part of your, your city has to basically be figuring out how to become a political football if you want anything done and the action to be taken yeah. has to be a terrible position to be in when you're in the middle, middle of a tragedy like this. Yeah. No, it's terrible. And, and it speaks to the unseriousness of uh, the the incumbent political establishment, whatever, current year, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's just, it's a joke, right? Like you need, you have to worry about this stuff. Like, are we sufficiently diverse or whatever uh to attract the attention that we need in a, in a crisis it just it's insane that you actually have to think about that stuff um that's not you know how a, a country should be run but that's that's how things are uh but going back to your point about i mean i i, I thought you were going to make a point about how this affects other places in ohio um but you went in a different direction but i'll just i'll touch no on that go too. ahead go for it because yeah. it's really interesting I spoke to uh, a reporter who told me that there was a, another team of reporters went to a town that's a few miles away called Negley. And they came back because th they went there to cover a story about, I think that there was chemicals that were detected in, in a stream in Negley. It's a three, three, three or five miles away from uh, East Palestine. And they came back with headaches and they reported a smell like paint thinner. And you know, to date, or at least when I published my story, there had been more than 43,000 uh, animal deaths attributed to uh, what happened in East Palestine over across Ohio, obviously not just in East Palestine. It ranges from fishes to other animals. So this already has, again, these kind of like far reaching consequences that everyone is wondering, you know, like, does it affect me, even though I'm you know, I'm about an hour. No, it's like, that's not true. I'm, I'm about two hours away, just just under two hours away from East Palestine. So I, I drove there. I did the, the two hour uh, drive every time I went. Um, but outside of it, you're already kind of seeing this. You know, you have all these you have other reports of people who had chickens uh, that, that died. Um, Joy, the woman I spoke with, she said that her chickens acted kind of strange. Um, she, she knows other people that had animal like livestock die and stuff like that. But there are all these unknowns, right? And and we're kind of in it for the long run where I guess we're not going to know until, you know, if, if so, I mean, th this is another part of, of why I wanted to write this story. It, it seemed like initially there was this kind of like sensationalism. I, I know you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to, to uh, make this criticism, but basically it seemed like people were, people who were critics of Biden were kind of exploiting it in a way to just like drive clicks and traffic. And, and basically that, that kind of annoyed me because like these people are already terrified and they don't need you 
to drive traffic to your page by, you know, saying that this is like, you're all going to die of cancer in five years or something like that. Mm-hmm. And just like scaring the, you know, scaring them basically. And so I think that's an important part of this is like getting, I guess, getting the facts out there and, and helping people to understand instead of just trying to scare them uh, and then forget about them. I mean, that's, that's, that's the worst part of that kind of stuff is like, you basically just gin up tons of like fear over what happened, but then you completely subtract the people who are actually affected from the story. So. Yeah. You, you really need, like I said, it just, it needs to be a situation where you don't have to be a political football to get the attention that's necessary. You don't have to drum up a bunch of outrage. There should be a, a consistent application of, you know, just, just basic interest by people and, the well-being of the people there and the the, nece- the necessary testing, the necessary uh, assistance, that should not be something that has to be completely driven by media attention to the point where it's hyperbolic and scaring everyone or to the point where it's non-existent and then yeah, you get right. nothing. Yeah, both but, extremes. Yeah, Right. But it, is there any uh, environmental groups? Are there, are there any people who are supposed to be we got all these ngos that are interested in this stuff are there any interested in, to be on the ground testing things helping these people out providing that the, that assistance you know in in yeah. the in the area i didn't see any like i i didn't i didn't see any kind of like you know like the like the pipeline protesters right who care so deeply right. about the environment like i didn't there's when i went to east palestine the last time um I, I didn't really see any kind of like fanfare or anything like that. I'm, I'm sure that there are probably like some small groups in, involved, but again, it's nowhere near like the level of activism that you see in other cases. Like, I don't know of any like Hollywood celebrity who's spoken about, you know, the plight of East Palestine or like we stand with East Palestine or something like that. It just, it just, right. I, as far as I can tell, it hasn't happened. And it's funny because uh, on the floor, on the, the window of one of the shops in downtown East Palestine, there's a sign that says East Palestine lives matter. So I think there's definitely a sense of that there. Like the, the locals are aware that like actually our small town matters too. And you should be paying attention to it, even if it's not fashionable, because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, no, no one's over there glu- you know, gluing themselves to artwork. So no one seems to really care about the, the environmental impact here. But yeah, you, you see these kinds of things happen all the time and you end up with, you know, benefit concerts or something. You, you Like I said, you think someone... Uh, would would be there at least yeah. you know have r- raising awareness or you know getting getting some kind of aid there driving again the, we got this massive NGO complex that seems to have plenty of time to send people everywhere but you know just, just not responding in this yeah. way so are there any uh, outside of obviously the fact that these people are resilient and many of them are committed to making this work which is incredibly admirable admirable but are there any efforts being made to change things hold anyone accountable change regulations of uh, figure out you know uh, legislation going forward that could that could improve this situation is any action being spurred by the fact that we had this major disaster that's you know uh, affected this town this way yeah i think right it might have even been the day that i published it jd vance and sherrod brown Republican and Democrat were talking about bipartisan legislation in response to East Palestine uh, with, that is related to transportation and stuff. So I, I think that that was, to my knowledge, like that was like the the major development. But I'm not really aware of of much more than that. It was a really it, it was great to see that right. Like it was a rare moment of of I think bipartisan. Usually the word bipartisan is actually a bad word, and it means you should run for your life because. It's like when you hear bipartisan, the next thing you're going to hear is like amnesty, right? Or bipartisan aid for Ukraine or something like that. Like it's typically nothing good. But this seems to be like a rare moment when when the word bipartisan actually meant something. Uh, and and so yeah, it was it was nice to see that. But apart from that, I, I don't really know. Um, Pete Buttigieg has only spoken about East Palestine to basically complain that he thinks it's unfair that the response of the Biden administration has been maligned and that basically like, it's kind of like, Hey, you know, Tucker Carlson says that he cares about people in Ohio, but I bet he's never been to TJ Maxx. Like, like that, that that's basically, that's actually what he said, by the way, there's like, there's a quote where he says that. that. Yeah. Right. It's so like, that's it. They're just, they're basically the people who are, uh, you know, the adults in the room, 
um, are just more concerned with saving face than actually helping people. Obviously, there are exceptions like Vance and Brown, um, but for the most part, yeah. I mean, again, I was I was glad that I waited as long as I did because right around the time I published it, it kind of felt like attention at, uh, over East Palestine was petering out. Like people were moving on to the next crisis, right? And I'm sure you saw the uptick in people reporting about derailments, uh, like on social media, like on Twitter. Like, like, there, mm. like every time a train, you know, skipped off a track, there was like a, a video that went viral or something like that, which is, I guess, like good in the sense that it brings attention to the fact that this does happen way more than it should. But on the other hand, what happens in places like East Palestine, uh, which is, a, I think, an, ex, an, an exceptionally bad case that gets forgotten in, in the sauce of all of these like, you know, viral videos of, of other incidents that are bad, but ultimately it's, you know, it's not carrying hazardous chemicals and no one is hurt or something like that, right? There, there, there are no long-term consequences for the community when like a train derails in the middle of nowhere. That's not what happened in East Palestine. Uh, you're talking about a massive train that derailed carrying some really nasty chemicals that have been, you know, that were released into the in, into the atmosphere and also buried in the ground uh, in a state that is, you know, home to a lot of like great farmland. And, and there, there's a lot of implications about, you know, the, the future of, of, uh, of, of what this is going to mean. So, I, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it is just this, uh, you know, it, it's the next big thing uh, yeah. cycle, right? Like, let's get excited yeah. about the next thing. Let's get excited about the next thing. And yeah, you get a little bit of extra scrutiny on the rail uh, you know, system during this time. But again, like you're talking about, these people don't live in your news cycle. These people, yeah. people don't, right. don't they, sh they shouldn't have to desperately hope that the that the national media will pay attention to them long enough for them to receive the kinds of aid and the kind of response that they deserve and again like you're absolutely right the bipartisan is almost always a terrible thing to hear because it usually means that the uniparty has decided how how to visit that upon yeah. something terrible upon you but it's so sad that that it's so rare to see like two guys who are from a you know, around an area saying Hey, we should work together to make sure that these people are taken care of and that yeah. this doesn't happen again. And that's, you know, reminds you, you, you have that, that, that 10 seconds of, oh, that's how government's supposed to work. Like that's yeah. actually what re representative government is supposed to do. Yeah. But we realize that so much more of it is driven by these new cycles and the next and, and focusing on the next thing, as opposed to like actually making measurable and important changes to protect and improve the lives of people who get you elected and, and, and who employ you and, and, and what you're supposed to do there. And so I, I am glad that you are covering this and I'm glad we could talk about it today. And I think it's important for people to remember that these, this can be your city. This can be your community. This is not some isolated incident. These kind of things happen. They're happening more and more often. They're going to continue to increase and you need to have an understanding of what, what to do in these scenarios, because like you said, you know, the, these poor first responders who are just stuck being uh, exposed to this stuff and, and who knows what kind of long-term side effects it's going to have. And who knows what kind of, uh, you know, insurance or, or medical care or, or, you know, those kind of things will be there for them in the long run. Yeah. You, you just, people need to understand that this stuff matters and you, you should have a government, that cares about this. You have a legal system that holds companies accountable, irregardless of how diverse a community is or how well it holds a news cycle together or how many celebrities it can get to do a benefit concert for it. You shouldn't have to live like this. You should have yeah. a system that cares for the people under it and, and shouldn't be driven entirely by how much media attention one can derive from any given tragedy. Yep. No, I, that's well said. I completely agree. And yeah, I mean that's that's why that's that's a big. There are different. Re there are obviously many reasons why I wrote this story, but that was a big part of it. Is yeah. is to show that uh, the rot is really deep, and it doesn't change unless enough people care, and it doesn't change unless enough people start paying attention, which is again hard um, for for the, all the reasons that you just outlined. But it's still a worthy effort. So. 
Absolutely. Well, guys, if you have any questions for myself or Pedro, go ahead and get them in now. We're going to go ahead and start <clears throat> wrapping everything up. But before we do, Pedro, where can people find your excellent work? So I am the, like Oren said, I'm the politics editor at Chronicles. So you can read me, my column at chroniclesmagazine.org. I publish a substack at contra.substack.com. Contra is where I published this long dive into East Palestine piece is called The Poison Train, East Palestine, and the Derailment of Norfolk Southern 32N. You can read it there. And I would encourage you to subscribe because this kind of this kind of work, I do it because I believe in it, but it's also extremely time consuming and requires uh, travel and all that stuff. So I, I appreciate all the support that I can get to, to do more of it because I, I, I also just really enjoy telling these stories and, and allowing people that are affected by them to speak for themselves. So... Yeah, and, and that's another reason I wanted to have you on because there's so much of this that is just aggregation. It's just one news site grabbing information from another report from another thing. Yeah. You know, but people are are there so little actual reporting gets done, and so I think people should su support it when they can. And I think, uh, guys, if if you, I know we went over a lot of material here, but you really should read the original piece because Pedro does have the receipts in there. He's got all the details. This does go very deep. There's a lot of complicated. Uh, connections, like I said, lobbying efforts, all, all kinds of things uh, that get detailed. So make sure that you're checking that out as well. Uh, also, guys, of course, if this is your first time here, make sure that you are subscribing to this channel. And if you want to listen to this as a podcast, of course, you can go check out the Oren McIntyre show. It's on all of your major podcast platforms. If you do, make sure that you go ahead and give a, uh, a review and a rating that really helps with all the algorithm magic and everything. If you want to subscribe to anything else, the Rumble, the Substack, the Odyssey, follow on Twitter, Gab, the links for all that stuff is down below. Again, want to thank Pedro for coming on. Make sure you're checking out his excellent reporting. And as always, guys, I'll talk to you next time.